Well, I'd like to encourage you to turn your Bibles at this time to the book of Mark. Our scripture reading will come from the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Mark here, for whom uh, the gospel is named, he was a close companion of the apostle Peter. He was uh, also known as John, who was also called John Mark, Barnabas's cousin, who accompanied Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey. He writes here in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It reads, When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus, aware of in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. Well, this morning we're very blessed to have had Dr. Arkant Hughes this past two days to minister to us in the subject of disciplines of the Christian life. He's the author of Disciplines of a Godly Man, which is a bestseller, has uh, stood the test of time for at least a couple of decades. His wife is the author of Disciplines of a Godly Woman. He is the editor of, of uh, a series called Preaching the Word, Commentaries. There are a number of books that he has authored on the back literature table that you can look at later on, and they're for sale at uh, our cost. He has been a pastor for some 41 years, 10 years as a youth pastor, five years as a church planter, and the balance of those years as the pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois. He is the pastor of a church in Wheaton, Illinois, and he has retired for the past four years or so, but not retired from ministry as he has traveled probably extensively. Uh, he has gone every other week or so this past year, 
And uh, it is a challenge as he has served in a number of capacities. He served on the Board of Americans United for Life, the Board of Trustees of World Radio Missionary Fellowship, the Board of Operation Mobilization, and he's currently a board member of Crossway Books and the former senior editor of Christianity Today. He has uh, come in the midst of uh, moving this past year to a new home, of course, when his family gathers together, which is a large family of four children and uh, 24 grandchildren and some great-grandchildren as well. Uh, The home and the acreage that he now needs to take care of uh, can entertain them all, but it is quite a task. This weekend, we have been so very blessed by his ministry and his encouragement, his advice and counsel. And once again, we have the blessing of having him open the word of God to us. So let's give him a warm welcome as he comes. Well, I want to thank your pastor for his warm hospitality. We've had a a wonderful time uh, talking about... uh, Mutual things of the heart. When pastors get together, that's what happens. Uh, we, we talk nonstop. And so we've had a great time fellowshipping with one another. The other thing I want to say is, is that uh, um, I've been refreshed by the body of Christ here in this church. It's uh, a beautiful expression of the body of Christ. And so being here Friday night and all day Saturday and then having the privilege of preaching on this the Lord's Day has been refreshing to my soul. You you're, are blessed people to be a part of the church here as it is uh, gathered together, the Assembly of the Saints. And it's a privilege to preach God's word to you this morning. Our text, as was read this morning, is from Mark chapter 2. And you want to keep it open before you. Alpine hikers, those that uh, hike, say, high in the Cascades or in the Rockies, have told me that when caught in a brewing storm, they have actually seen the hair on the head of their fellow hikers stand straight out from their heads in a kind of, kind of like a radiant crown. And uh, if wearing metal backpacks, they've seen the backpack begin to glow with kind of a neon blue, which is called St. Elmo's Fire. That's what it's called, St. Elmo's Fire. And that same phenomenon is recorded in history, and they would see it, say, out on the ocean on a, a sailing ship where the mast would begin to glow with an eerie uh, blue glow. And if it sounds like I'm talking about something that's, that's in the past or is so heady and high, airline pilots will sometimes see it around the windscreen on their plane when they're flying. And it's called St. Elmo's Fire. You can, you can Google it. <laughs> you can find out about it. In all cases, it means the air is charged with electricity and that lightning is very much a possibility. Indeed, that it's imminent. And for the hiker, it means get rid of that backpack and take cover. Or you could be the victim of a lightning strike. Now, that that, uh, electric atmosphere, I think, conveys something of the atmosphere Capernaum is described in our text. Because as you read the text and as we open the text, you're going to see there's kind of a spiritual fire hovering over those that are gathered 
uh, in this little house, Capernaum. Surely you can't see it. It's not, it's not visible, but it is palpable. Invisible, but palpable. And uh, I'm reading from the ESV, so it'll sound a little differently, but it's the same in essence in verses 1 and 2. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, speaking God's words. Now, the home that he was in is likely the home of Peter's mother-in-law. And when word got out that Jesus was staying at Peter's mother-in-law's home, uh, he was back, people began to show up. And immediately the home in which Jesus stayed was packed. Some just curious, because his ministry was being spoken of all over the area. Others, indeed, were bright-eyed new disciples who hung on Jesus' every word. They couldn't get enough of it. And then important people began to show up, people of note, and uh, they looked a bit edgy, a little nervous, perhaps a little hostile, avoiding the eye contact of the crowds that are around. And as always the case, those crowds then attracted crowds, so there was not room even at the door. So the picture you have is a house that's absolutely crowded, packed around the door, no way to get in. And people on the outside, this is the the Holy Land, noise and dust and heat and disease and jostling and crowding and still more people pressing to get close. And yet, with all this crush, there are really two dominating presences there. First... The parallel account in Luke, Luke 5.17, says the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were there. It identifies them specifically as those men. Now, the unsuspecting crowd, it looked like maybe a spiritual life conference. You've got the spiritual heavyweights there. But in actuality, it is an investigative committee come to see what they could find wrong with this young rabbi, Jesus. And though there's the press out there and there's standing room only, they are sitting. And you can kind of picture them sitting in the forefront, right in front of Jesus, wearing suspicious looks, just waiting for him to misspeak, make a wrong step. So, this is what we're talking about, about this interpersonal fire in the air, the tension that is in the air. That's part of the presence. The other is, of course, Jesus, sitting as a teaching rabbi, calm, unperturbed, in control, and he is preaching the word to them about the nearness of the kingdom. The gospel of God, as Mark calls it in the first verse of the first chapter. The necessity of faith and repentance. Now, I personally think that crowd sensed something of what was going on. Certainly, they didn't, they didn't understand the depth of the tension. But you know that when you're in a room 
and there's some tension, there's some interpersonal stuff, you can kind of sense it and you can kind of feel it. And they probably felt some of that. And it's very interesting that Dr. Luke says in Luke 5.17 that the power of the Lord was there to heal. Very interesting statement. So the room is charged. The relational atmosphere is tense. And then a disturbance began. And Mark continues in his text here in verses 3 and 4. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed in which the paralytic lay. Now, you can fill in the lines here. Four men... Uh, bearing a litter on which a helpless paralytic lay, approached the friends of the crowd. And they couldn't get through. It was apparent that there was no way they were going to get through that door. No one was going to make way for them. Their few attempts proved futile. So they perhaps set the mat down for a moment, mopped their brows, looked around, and then decided what they were going to do, which was they were going to go around the uh, crowd to the side of the house and uh, scale the side of the house, get him up on that flat roof, or perhaps a neighboring house and step across. However the situation was, after some hauling and pulling and getting that man up there, they stepped across and had that man on the roof. Set him down. Caught their breath. And then they did the most amazing thing. They began to tear a hole in the roof. Now, the typical roof in those days was constructed of timbers laid parallel to each other, like roof joists. And then across that, smaller uh, branches so that you've got your basic roof. And then on top of that, about a foot of branches and twigs packed down. And then a foot of mud on top of it. So the whole thing, in many cases, would be about almost three feet thick. And they are tearing through this roof. Uh, Those inside would have heard the concussion on top. And they would have heard the prying. And as uh, things began to develop, debris would have began to fall down on the people inside. And they would hear those voices ever louder and then... A light began to show, and then you could hear those voices uh, directly. And I, I would have to say, there had to be some words exchanged between those below and those above, wouldn't you think? I mean, and after all, this is Peter's mother-in-law's house, and Peter is never without a word. It opens to the size of a man. And then the paralytic is slowly lowered down on ropes. Now, what a scene. Presumably a sunshiny day. It's, it's that area of the world. They're on top of the roof and they're doing it. So above, with the light streaming past them in dusty beams, you look above and you see the faces of those four men looking down a little self-satisfied. Below in the midst is the paralytic, and before him is the Prince of Peace. Uh, It's quite a scene. 
And history to remember this caper in Capernaum. And we all know what happened. We know what happened. We know this story. We've known this story since we were children. I think we're going to see something different in a little later today, but we all know what happened. But for a moment, I want to concentrate on those four friends before we move on. And the thing you have to understand is they really loved this paralytic. They wouldn't be put off by the crowd. They even took liberties with someone else's property, that roof. They abused another's property. They ignored the uh, disapproval of those perhaps inside, especially the Pharisees and the scribes and perhaps the owner of the house. And you have to say, how could they do this? Well, perhaps he was family. Uh, A sibling. An uncle. They loved him. Perhaps a neighbor. But whatever his relation, whatever the relationship, they loved this man. And whatever happened that day, whether it would be healing, whether it would be rejection, whatever, that was a very rich man. Because he had something that literally people can pay, try to buy with millions of dollars today. And they can't buy people that really loved him. Familiar with the... uh, The story of Christina Onassis, you would understand that millions of dollars can't buy this kind of love. And God was going to work in that man's life because his friends loved him so. But their remarkable faith is paired with something equally remarkable. I mean, their love, and that is their faith. There is no way that they would have gone to such outrageous extremes if they did not believe that Jesus could... And would heal their friend. If you've got a wavering faith, you're going to demur. Especially when you start tearing into the roof. Guys, you have to take care of it yourself. Uh, I think I've got some other things to do. But uh, they truly believed. And their faith was not a vague, subjective, passive thing like so many people talk about faith today. that you've got to have faith, that uh, sort of misty, uh, ethereal thing. Their faith was persistent. When they got their friend on the stretcher, there's no stopping him. When they came to an obstacle, none of them said, uh, well, the door is closed. Uh, can't get into the door. I guess this isn't God's will. They didn't form a committee either. He'd still be on the roof. <laughs> And Jesus loved this. Now, there is an enigmatic saying in Matthew eleven twelve, not specifically with this in view, but the principle of what's going on in here. When Jesus says, you've probably heard this before, wonder what's, what's about. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. What's that? Well, when the four tore through the roof, they took the kingdom by violent, determined, grace, force. That, that kind of, of grace, force that believes and gets out and does it, unleashes God's power. And Jesus still loves this. I mean, that is what happens in world missions, so to speak. When people believe the gospel. Now, 
Violent is, is, is metaphorical in the sense of getting out and doing it. That force. And their faith is also creative. Undoubtedly, there were people that went, wow, that was really a great idea. Why didn't I think of it? Well, the reason they didn't think of it is they didn't love and they didn't believe like these two. That's where it comes from. They were believing. And it was sacrificial. Somebody was going to have to mend that roof. Somebody was going to have to pay for the materials. They are going to have to spend the time. I mean, they weren't going to just walk away from it. But they didn't count the cost. Now, perhaps, perhaps you're, you're new to this fellowship or you're new to the kind of preaching that takes the Bible seriously and takes Jesus seriously. And you've heard people talking about putting their faith in Jesus and you wondered, what does that mean? And there's a there's a little bit of a snapshot here of what true faith is about. It's about action. It's not just knowing the facts. It's acting on the facts. And that's the way it is in the Gospel of Mark, which always has the word immediately, again and again and again. It's the go gospel. And the faith of four friends meant that no one could keep them from bringing their pitiful friend to Jesus. They found a way through the callous crowds. They believed. The roof, they just ripped it off. So the paralytic not only had faithful friends, he had faith-filled friends who so passionately believed that they took action and got him to Jesus. Now, if you're a guest, uh, you can listen to this because I'm going to speak to the Christians that are here. We believe that Jesus is the only person who can change our lives forever. Is that not right? And we believe that with all of our hearts. We passionately believe that. And I think that most of us, if put to the test, would die for that. That's how much we believe it. In fact, everything is rested upon it. We passionately believe it. But I want to say that if you're here today because some friends have invited you to come, perhaps even pestered you to come, I mean, they've... They keep coming back and asking and keep and you finally come today. I want to say you're a blessed person because you have faithful friends. You really are blessed. And you're in the crosshairs of grace, so to speak, because of faithful friends. Paralytic. I'll tell you who the real paralytics were. They were the Pharisees and the scribes. That's who they were. In marked contrast to those four stretcher bearers, they're sitting there. And even as an investigative committee with what's going on, they should have been directing the traffic to Jesus. Here's this poor guy. But what you get, at least implicitly, is that they're sitting back indifferently, perhaps criticizing. Now, Jesus saw everything. He's, he's right there. He sees it far more clearly than do as he looks through the dusty beams and he sees everything around him. And he decided to use this charged moment with this man on the litter before him to make his point. And what Jesus did was shocking. 
it was a bolt of lightning, so to speak. When he said to the paralytic, my son, son, your sins are forgiven. You say, how so? I'll tell you, it's shocking for two reasons. First, because your sins are forgiven is so shockingly irrelevant. Here's a wretched paralytic moldering away on his, his uh, stretcher in, in quiet desperation, hoping to be healed, hoping to be delivered from the state that he's been in. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven? Thanks a lot, Jesus. I didn't come here for a religious sleight of hand. For those words, thanks for nothing. Take me home. Maybe the guys above, yes, thanks a lot. Because everyone in that room could see what that wretched man's greatest need was. It was healing. But, if Jesus is the Son of God, we better listen carefully because Jesus Christ never indulges in irrelevancies. And when Jesus looked down on that man, it was only a few feet away, he saw everything very clearly. He saw shriveled appendages. He saw a man who perhaps felt himself to be a burden to others. He saw a man who was an aching prisoner of his body. But as he looked at all of that, he penetrated through to that man's deepest need, which was the forgiveness of sins. And when he went beyond that man's surface need to his deepest need, he addressed the need of every person in that room. Now, it's possible that the man on the stretcher uh, was a notorious sinner. That's possible. I think it's highly unlikely Because I think his paralysis would have mitigated against indulging in what would make him a notorious sinner. The the big sins, the public sins that people see. I rather doubt that there was adultery in his life that day. Or fornication. Or that he'd uh, killed anybody. Or that he had robbed anybody. He simply couldn't do what society considers to be the big bad stuff. So Jesus' point is clear. Sin is not just about our actions, it's about our hearts. That man may have been the biggest sinner in Capernaum because it's all here. And here. He might have been. But however it was, whether he was or he wasn't, his spiritual need was far more desperate than his physical need. And if Jesus cured the man of paralysis... He could have gotten, if say the guy's 40 years old, he'd gotten 20 or 30 years of good health and alleviate decades of misery. But when he forgave the man's sins, he delivered him not only from his sins, but an eternity apart from God, from hell itself. And all that the force of what Jesus says here would penetrate our thinking. Because you may have walked in the door this morning and we all carry burdens and concerns and say and be thinking your greatest need is a job. 
and you've been without work, if you've got responsibilities, that is a pressing need. I'll grant that. Or perhaps an education. I've just got to get that MA to get that job with, where I can make a decent living. Or a spouse. That may have been what you're thinking of. That may be the thing you, that you, you walked in here for this morning. Looking around for a good Christian woman or a good Christian man, perhaps. You know, ethical, good, moral person. Or your health. I'll tell you what, if you have some sort of, of disease or incipient thing going on, that will be, fill your horizon. You may think that is your greatest need, but it is not because in the economy of God and in all eternity, it is the forgiveness of your sins. That's shocking in today's culture. But that is the truth. And may that, uh, that lightning bolt of what Jesus has done shake you to your senses. Now, what Jesus further says is shocking for a second reason. And that's what it says about himself. Verses 6 and 7. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? These scribes and Pharisees, they knew their Bibles. And they were horrified because Jesus was making the appalling, blasphemous claim to be God. Because according to the Bible, sin is essentially, ultimately against God. They knew it. I mean, you have the account of King David. You talk about terrible horizontal sins. Uh, Taking the wife of Uriah and committing adultery with her. And then, having done that heinous sin, horizontal sin, arranging a premeditated murder of Uriah. Premeditated adultery premeditated rape uh, murder excuse me but when he confessed his sin in Psalm 51 what did he say he knew his sins were horizontal he knew what he'd done he cried out to God in penance for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you God you only have I sinned and done what is wicked in your sight because he knew it was ultimately against God And that's where sins all ultimately go. And he is the only one who can forgive those sins. So, Jesus, by what he did, is claiming to be God incarnate. There's no doubt about it. Such colossal blasphemy deserved death. And of course, apart from the the, the shock and the... uh, mm, the uh, with Jesus, the uh, absolutely uh, scathing looks on their face. Jesus knew exactly what was going on in their minds. And so you read in verses eight and nine and immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, 
rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, which is easier? I think I know which is easier. I mean, there are billions invested in research communities today to solve the miseries of paralysis with very little to show. I know what's easier. Much easier to look around this room and say, your sins are forgiven, than to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Uh, You'll be interested, I was at uh, John MacArthur's 40th uh, anniversary celebration at his church and Johnny Erickson Tata was there with her husband and uh, and she's been she's been a paralytic and bedridden for I think it's getting close to 50 years she's not a young woman anymore and uh, her loving husband with her but has anyone ever had the temerity to go up to Johnny Erickson Tata and say, rise, take up your bed and walk? I don't think so. But here, the Lord Jesus shocks again and the electricity in the air, so to speak, flashes, this is imaginatively, with lightning. As he says in verses 10 and 12, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. They indeed hadn't. And this is not one of those... um, Healings where suddenly someone gets hearing they haven't had. You know. The paralytic's crooked bones straightened and assumed their density. Immediately. His tendons flexed and stretched. His, his uh, atrophied muscles inflated. Remember the Incredible Hulk? His sagging skin became taut. Well, I understand that at my age. (laughs) And at once he rolled off his bed and stood illuminated in the light coming in from the hole above. And standing exultant, he bent down, picked up his bed, put it on his shoulder, and strode out of that building with the crowd, no doubt, parting before him like the ways before the prow of an oncoming boat. For his four faithful friends joined him, likely leaping and hooping it up all the way home. They weren't Bostonians, you know. (laughs) Now here it is. For Jesus Christ, it was an easy thing to say, take up your bed and walk. That is the easiest thing. It merely required an an exercise of His creational power. He created all 28 octillion stars in the universe. 80 billion light years of expanse. Everything's been created by Jesus. Everything has been created and sustained by Him. So for Him to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, 
is nothing. He does it with the ease of omnipotence. There's no diminishing of his power. It's, it's easy for Jesus. But the hardest thing of all was to say, Son, your sins are forgiven because that meant his death on the cross. You go uh, forward 12 chapters in the book of Mark to the 14th chapter and you have Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. The prospect is so horrific that it tells us there in verses 33 and following that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Some of the commentators will tell you what he's really saying there is that he could die as he looks into the cup and sees the whore that is before him. And he says, remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. That's how he regarded the horror of the cup. Yet... Not what I will, but what you will. And when the hour came, he did it by dying the lowest death of all, even death on a cross. Now, in retrospect, the Apostle Paul, great theological line, looked back on this and described it in 15 words in the Greek. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin. Who knew no sin. So in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was sinless through all of his 33 years as he knew no sin. He remained sinless when he became sin. So that Christ, while remaining uh, uh, inwardly and outwardly impeccable, became sin. And on those three dark Hours on Good Friday, his heart, so to speak, became a sea in which poured the fountains of our festering sin. The loathsome mass of our corruption poured over him, and our sins were focused on Christ so that he bore the fiery wrath of God, having become a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 And Jesus, in full lucid consciousness, writhing like an impaled serpent on the cross in the gloom, took your sins and mine with a unity of understanding and pain that none can fathom. And he did it willingly to say, Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. So I want you to take it to heart. The hardest thing ever done in the universe, in the whole history of the universe, The whole history of the cosmos, the hardest thing ever done in time and eternity was done by Jesus Christ for you and me. That is the dominant theological fact of the atoning death of Jesus on the cross. The hardest, most horrific thing ever done. And his death means that he's committed to forgiving you if you turn to him. Did you hear that? He's committed to forgiving you on the basis of what he did as you turn to him. 
Charles Spurgeon, with his great imagination, I think, I just love it here. He says, here's what Spurgeon writes about the paralytic who's healed. I think I see him. He sits, sets one foot down to God's glory. He plants the other the same note. He walks to God's glory. He carries his bed to God's glory. He moves his whole body to the glory of God. He speaks, he shouts, he sings, he leaps to the glory of God. What a display before the wondering crowd. Who's to say the paralytic and his four friends didn't dance down the street while everyone clapped in rhythm? And as he went home, he bore something far more impressive than his bed. He bore a clean heart. The greatest miracle of all, a clean heart. I'll just say, experientially, when I was young and I was saved and my guilt was lifted off, I felt like the law of gravity had been suspended for me. I felt lighter. You know, I've often walked down the street before, but the pavement always stayed beneath my feet before. You know the line. All of a sudden, I'm 20 miles high. I, I, that uh, Have you ever had your guilt removed? That leaden cape of guilt. That sense of, oh, having it gone. And along with this... That, that paralytic with that clean heart and no guilt had no bitterness and no tension. He had the shalom, the peace of Christ. You can have that because he did the hardest thing in all the universe for you in taking your sins. Now, someday that paralytic's newly restored limbs would again wither and his body would begin to... Uh, uh, disintegrate and his lungs would stop breathing and his heart would stop but there would remain in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life because Jesus the creator of everything has done this he can do anything he wants he can heal any disease he pleases but the greatest miracle the only one is eternal is he forgives sins have you ever heard him just say it in your heart. Have you, and I don't mean audibly that you heard him say it. I'm talking about the reality of it. Have you ever had him say to you, your sins are forgiven? And had your sins lifted? And know they're gone. Well, as uh, was noted earlier in Capernaum, the power of the Lord was within the heel. So the room was charged and the atmosphere Fairly crackled with expectation. You know what I think? I think any time this text is honestly exposited within its context, there is that kind of um, St. Elmo's fire in the air. You can't see it. But I think that if we could see spiritual realities, we might see that someone here, maybe someone back there, maybe someone here, Maybe maybe some more. If you could see it, if you had glasses to see it, you'd see that they were backlit by kind of a blue glow because lightning is ready to strike. The lightning of God's grace is ready to come down. And perhaps right now you're going, I get it. I believe it. Well, guess what? You've just been struck by grace.
you believe. If you have, you need to talk to the pastor. Say, yeah, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins and he was resurrected on the third day and he has taken my sins and my sins are gone. Because our greatest need is still the same. We need our sins forgiven. And Jesus has done the greatest work ever done in all the universe to say your sins are forgiven. Are you forgiven? Praise God. Because that's what you're going to do for all eternity. Well, God, may God minister his grace to the wonderful body of Christ here. And may the grace, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen.